welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Coming back to the show, first-time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. If you're viewing, watching on YouTube, welcome. If you're checking us out on Counterpunch Plus, welcome. Uh, that is our subscriber section. That is what has replaced our print magazine, our dearly departed print magazine. But, of course, if you think independent media is important, as I know you do, go over to Counterpunch and get a subscription to Counterpunch Plus. That's how you keep us going. Help keep the lights on. Help keep that great content rolling. And uh, we're going to do a little bit of talking about independent media, the importance of independent media a little bit later. And I know, of course, you all want to talk about baseball, the the upcoming playoffs. I mean, I know you're all dying to hear about it. So I have David Roth back. I don't know if you all remember, but he's been on the show before. So I guess we can officially say friend of the show now. Yeah. David Roth, he is the co-owner of Defector Media. He's one of the many people who makes Defector what it is. He's also the co-host of The Distraction, a Defector podcast, which you should all subscribe to. And of course, he's the sole proprietor of at David underscore J underscore Roth on Twitter. David Roth, welcome back to Counterpunch. Thanks for having me, man. Nice to be back. So last time we talked about Three or four hours worth of baseball. Everybody loved it, so I figured we would we would Everybody's do something like, you got, similar. Got to go in depth. I want the more the Double A Binghamton Rumble Ponies roster rundown. Oh well, absolutely. And a matter of fact, Aaron Judge is supposed to be breaking some kind of record. I heard something about that, but is that happening? That's not tonight. That's some other. That's like I don't know. Week. I'm kind of like a Mets guy, so it's sort of whatever. <laughs> All right, David, let's talk a little bit about some political issues as they intersect with sports, which is okay. where Defector finds a nice niche for itself. Um, baseball is uh, my favorite sport. It's the one that I'm most educated to speak about. So it's the one I'm going to start off this conversation with. Uh, so, David, talk to me a little bit about unionization in baseball, specifically the recent announcement of unionization in the minor leagues. Um, this is something that has been talked about for years years and years. It is, uh, I think, a pretty significant development, both in the sport, but also more broadly with regard to organized labor. So let's talk a little bit about this. What happened? Why is this happening now? And why is it important? So I'm basing most of my answer on this, I should say, on some conversations I've had with friends who know more about this than me, and then a story in Sports Illustrated that I recommend everybody read by Emma Bocellari, who I worked with briefly at Deadspin. Uh, so briefly, in fact, that I might have mispronounced her last name, B-A-C-C-E-L-L-I-E-R-I, -E -E uh, if you're looking for it. And she basically did the blow by blow on how the miners got organized. And the short answer, as with any triumphant story of organizing, is that they got organized by organizing themselves, that it was completely person to person, that there were outside a group called Advocates for Minor Leaguers that started up in the last few years that had sort of provided a legal framework. The guy that runs that is someone named Harry Marino, who was a minor league pitcher himself and is an attorney and had a vested interest in this. But this was something that it had been a long time coming, as you said. And basically, this got done in the way that, you know, in the way that my, the workplace that I've worked in that organized itself while I was there it was the same deal that basically people realized that they were working, which was vice media. Uh, and that was some years ago. And in that case, it was just that people realized that this company was worth a lot of money, was making a lot of money, and that we were not, and that there was no process for us to ever make more, and that the people that were in charge of paying us were bragging about how little we were paid and had made it a big part. I mean, like literally in this case, because it was part of Vice's whole uh, 
that was how they were selling themselves at the time. They were like their CEO was kind of like the youngest person that any billionaire media asshole had ever met and he had tattoos and so they were like wow this guy's so sick he like uh calls the people that work for him uh young idiots or whatever um anyway people got sick of it and they organized and they found a union to help them provide the framework for it and that's how it works in this case it starts in earnest with 2016 uh major league baseball's owners pushed an act through, well, they lobbied hard for an act that sort of sailed through the House and the Senate in the way that anything lobbied for sufficiently hard enough tends to sail through. That was called the Protect America's Pastime Act, which is a pretty fucking bold name. Am I allowed to say the F word? Absolutely. Okay, sorry. So it is an extremely bold name for something that was basically designed to codify minor league labor as seasonal apprentices, uh, which is how they... Major League Baseball teams that own minor league baseball teams could get away with paying these guys, you know, something like half or a third of the minimum wage um, if you break down their work by the hour and then not paying them at all during the offseason. I think minor league because players... minor league because minor league ball players are like uh, seasonal migrants working uh, in the fields and uh, other such. So that was basically the pitch that so that was effectively their pitch. And then the newer version of that, which Rob Manfred who's Major League Baseball's commissioner, came out with shortly before it was announced that minor league baseball was going to be organizing. They're organizing through the Major League Baseball Players Association, but uh, they had been like, this was an organizing effort that got done very much at a grassroots level, clubhouse to clubhouse, clubhouse by clubhouse. Manfred's argument was that the seasonal uh, apprentice thing shouldn't be understood exactly like they were picking grapes. It was more the way that like when you're in your 20s, you know, maybe you decide you want to make it in, you know, you want to have your band or you want to, uh, you know, try to paint or you want to do something interesting. And then, you know, it doesn't work out and then you get on with your life. And that was basically how Manfred, this is, again, the league's official public presentation of this. That was how they talked about the vast majority of minor leaguers who will never play in the majors. Uh, as if they were uh, just sort of exploring their starving artist side while taking long bus rides across the South Atlantic League. This sucked. People hated it. It made minor leaguers really mad. And the thing that you get from Emma's story that really comes through, she talked to a lot of the players who were behind this, some of whom are guys who've, many of them are guys who've played a little bit in the majors, but mostly in the minors. It's like a whole class of minor league baseball players a lot of people do wash out but there's also a lot of guys that play into their early 30s playing in triple a and you know maybe they get a few days in the bigs and maybe they have a late career breakthrough but also maybe they don't and this is just something that they want to do those people in emma's story every single one of them said that the protect america's pastime act was radicalizing for them just in the sense that they saw in black and white how important it was to the league that they never get paid a living wage. And they did the one thing that they thought they could do to change that. And, you know, it's a long way from over. Major League Baseball does have a lot invested in not paying these guys, Uh, not because it doesn't have enough money, but just on principle. But I do think that they are, they clearly caught Major League's owner or Major League owner's looking on this one if i may use a baseball term like they wound up having to recognize that union because the card check was like it was overwhelmingly pro and it was also i think that like they just had not they had underestimated these guys 
it's not going to say they're not going to throw a lot of money at it and a lot of lawyers at it, and they're going to make it hard. Like anybody that's been through a union organization campaign knows that this next bit of it sucks and it takes forever. But they did something in this last year that I think, you know, if you go back 10 years, this was unimaginable. If you go back two years, I would say that it would have seemed like a pipe dream, even to the socialist ball writer types that I talk to about shit like this. So it is extremely, this is like, I think one that you can let yourself feel good about. Like so far, this has been inspiring, you know, like any of these words that are kind of hard to use when it comes to uh, this sort of campaign, like all of those fit. It just doesn't mean that it's over yet. One of the interesting things about it, I think, is that there's the question of, I mean, let's call it hubris on the part of the owners mm-hmm. and on the part of Major League Baseball, because, you know, this uh, this massive uh, corporate machine that the league really is, I mean, they have gone out of their way to attack minor league baseball in recent years, the recent contraction of, I don't know, a few dozen uh, yeah. franchises. A third uh, of the minors. Yeah, I mean, communities that no longer have baseball that it had it for a century or more. I mean, the attack by major leagues over these last few years almost feels like it led to this backlash, almost like they brought it on themselves in a sense. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think beyond the sort of the ugliness and the sort of like, I feel like you're going to understand what I'm talking about. Probably the people that are listening are going to understand what I'm talking about. I should have a better way of saying this, that there is a sense sometimes that the most powerful people in our culture are just stunting on the rest of us in a way that they're like, they're rubbing our noses in it a little bit sometimes. You know what I mean? That like, you look at like Howard Schultz with Starbucks where he's making a point of like just firing some like 21 year old in Buffalo that's trying to organize a store. Like that person couldn't hurt Howard Schultz with a bazooka. And yet like, it means a lot that that person not be able to inconvenience him to Howard Schultz. And in this case, I think there there was a lot of that at a, at a personal level with the way that owners and commissioners talked about players. And then I think, as you said, the disaffiliating all those teams in the minors, that that was the result of, and that was a response, I guess, rather, to an initial concession that the owners made, which was that over the years, and again, with a lot of, of help from advocates for minor leaguers, which seeded a lot of stories in, in the press and helped players sort of find a way to get this stuff out. We're pointing out not just how badly minor leaguers were being paid, but how little in the way of other benefits teams were offering. And so there's, you look at a lot of these towns and you're right that, you know, a lot of communities that had baseball in many cases for a very long time don't have it anymore. A lot of the places that do have it though, are like, you know, if you go to like AAA or AA, that like the AAA team, I think it's for the Reds, is in Nashville, Tennessee, which is an extremely expensive place to live. The Class A team, the South Atlantic League team that plays in Myrtle Beach, is a similar sort of situation. It is very difficult for these players to find housing, period, in communities like that, let alone find it when they're getting paid $500 a month. And in that case, the teams were not, they weren't offering housing stipends. It wasn't a big you know, deal to them. And so these players would get these tiny per diems and these tiny salaries. They'd be living, you know, four or five guys to an apartment needing peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, you know, for every meal. That sort of thing, you know, again, beyond being sort of like penny wise, pound foolish, like if you think 
of the miners as being an enterprise in developing the best possible talent that you can, you would want those people to live someplace where they could sleep enough hours every night, eat a healthy diet, any of this basic shit that you would only deny that if it was important to you that these guys got not one more cent from you than you could afford to give them. When the teams finally did make a concession on stuff like housing stipends, or when it became clearer, I guess, that they were going to do that, because not every team has done it yet, certainly not every team. Some teams have sort of unlocked this idea where they're like, maybe we're going to have a dietitian on every team. Maybe we're going to make sure these guys eat like something other than like a Chipotle bowl that they stretch out over the course of a week. You know, that like some teams have done that and it's been an attempt to sort of do some money ball shit in terms of treating players as if they're human beings. But for the most part, when teams realized they were going to have to do some of this basic stuff because of the public outcry more than anything else, because there wasn't, you know, even a nascent organizing effort then that like they wanted to keep the costs that they spend on player development neutral. This was an idea that came from the front office of the Houston Astros, which is basically a McKinsey consulting outpost. It's all McKinsey alumni has been for many years that they basically in disaffiliating a third of the teams and calculating the housing stipend, it wound up being sort of revenue neutral for them, which again is one of those things where like, yeah, congratulations on finding a way not to spend any extra money on this. But baseball player development is hard. Having these teams in small cities builds a fan base out beyond the reaches of the, you know, the big league town with the big league team in it. It's the sort of thing that you would care about if you were an owner that cared about the health of the sport. Um, There just aren't really very many of those owning teams right now. Another interesting point about this that I wanted you to uh, comment on is the fact that, and I, I, I mean... It seems so obvious, but I do think it bears repeating that, especially with regard to the minor leagues, though even true to some degree with the major leagues. I mean, these are very young workers. These are yeah. kids. You yep. know what I mean? So it's 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 not substantively different than what you see in places like Starbucks and Chipotle and some of these other chains that are also seeing this unionization effort, particularly being driven by young workers, young workers who are active in their workplace. And so in a sense, I think that this is really part of a broader uh, organized labor sort of issue across the country. And it's not specific to uh, baseball or even to sports. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The other thing I would add to that uh, is that with minor league baseball players, a lot of these people are not U.S. citizens. They're people who come from the poor countries in the global south where major league baseball finds its talent. So these are players from Venezuela in a lot of cases or from Mexico. And they are, you know, so this was what I think made the organizing effort so impressive to me that like culturally baseball is very conservative. The player base in the United States tends to skew from places that whether the people involved are anti-union or not, that a lot of major league baseball players are from Texas and from Florida and from the Southeast. These are places that have no tradition really of, organized labor, or if they do, it's been suppressed so vigorously over the last 50 years that, you know, it would be sort of hard to, to like sort of find a cultural memory of it. And yet they did it. They did. I mean, that like, this was an overwhelmingly supported thing. It wasn't the idea of like, I think this is where we're going to go with that movement that you're talking about of young people organizing on their own behalf. I think where you're going to see Amazon and Starbucks and the places that have a lot invested in this, that they're going to lean into some culture war shit 
and you know like the sort of veneer of liberalism or inclusivity that they have as a brand is going to give way to uh you know these woke freaks want to organize this workplace whatever this is these are baseball players dude these are like jocks who <laughs> want to like drink brews and play baseball I think that at some point, this is where I have some hope. One of the very few spots where I think you can really get me sort of um, out over my skis a little bit in terms of hoping that things get better. I think that anybody in any circumstances, if they're being exploited, can recognize that that is happening to them. Even if you have ideologically a lot invested in not recognizing that, if you want to be somebody who, if you're just, you know, whatever, the temporarily embarrassed millionaire or whatever the sort of hack term for it is. But like, if you treat people like shit for long enough, they're either going to accept that you are right or they're going to stand up for themselves. And I think in this case, like as in the cases of all of these random Starbucks's and, you know, like Amazon shipping facilities and wherever else you sort of see it, that it makes sense that that's, because I feel like that energy has been in our politics for a minute. I think that that, you know, can go back to, it's not the first Sanders campaign, but I think that that's the moment when a lot of people heard it first. It's really hard to get a candidate advocating for that sort of thing elected. But like if you're in a store that's got eight people in it and you're one person that believes that and you've got seven people you could talk to, that feels a lot more winnable. And I think that that's like, that is how it's going to have to start. And I don't know necessarily where it ends, but if it makes it better for the people in those workplaces, then you know, again, like fucking sign me up. One of the interesting things about the way that it's gone down in baseball is the fact that Major League Baseball really rushed to recognize this union effort yeah. once it became public. And so um, I I have a feeling that you and I probably land in a similar place when it comes to uh, uh, questioning the motives of MLB and questioning the motives of uh, corporate entities like that and like them. So what's the deal? David, why did they recognize them so quickly? Why did they not fight tooth and nail? Why did they not demand to, you know, fight for every square foot of uh, real estate here? What's, this the, is, what's the story? This is one where I would be in a way better position to answer this if I had already read the story that Mark Normandon is going to be writing for me at Defector. Uh, he, I just assigned it today. So obviously he hasn't filed yet. So instead of ripping off his insights into this, he is the guy to read on this, in my opinion really has been uh, has been on top of it for a really long time, writes for Baseball Prospectus, has his own newsletter, and does write for Defector uh, when we can track him down. Uh, the short answer seems to be basically that to a certain extent, they were wrong-footed by it. And then to another, uh, in another sense, that like because they just agreed like really over the winter at the end of a lockout to the new collective bargaining agreement, that they're not, they don't, the owners don't really have the most leverage right now. They've got to play under this agreement for another eight years. And so they are not, I mean, they obviously have the high hand in this because they're billionaires and the people that are organizing against them are, as you know, as we've said, teenagers uh, who make $15,000 annually. But I think that to a certain extent, there's an element of underestimating it. And then there is also this other sense where they, I think realized that because they were far enough behind and because they really were, it seems caught off surprise, caught by surprise at this being announced that like they need time to retrench. And so like, instead of like recognizing the union is the sort of thing where, and again, if you've been through a campaign like this, 
it's good, but it's the beginning. It's not the end of anything. The decision to recognize the union in this case sort of turns the heat off on them for a little bit. And I think they can then pivot to trying to figure out what their strategy is to exert you know, maximum pain on the people in the negotiations. But that's where it's good to have the Major League Baseball Players Association as, you know, behind you, that the the minor league players are going in there with the most high-powered labor side, labor attorneys that basically exist. The Major League Baseball Players Association has been state-of-the-art on this stuff for, you know, historically it's been state-of-the-art on it. Like, they haven't always crushed it. I think they did a pretty good job on the last collective bargaining agreement. But this is the sort of thing where this is all open field for them. You know, that this is they're not having to deal with hedging on previous agreements or building on, you know, the last collective bargaining agreement What the MLBPA won in it was important, but it's incremental. The stuff that they gave away over 20 years of notional labor peace is going to take three CBAs to get back. And in this case... This is, you know, obviously they don't start with an advantage like the labor side of these things never really does. But I think that there's there's a, a sense here, I think, that owners maybe like didn't give this enough thought, realized that they were caught out there and made a sort of a hedge in this in terms of trying to, you know, find a way to, to postpone it. I don't think that it suggests in any way that they're going to be anything but hideous <laughs> at every other step of the way. That's just, that's the culture. And I just wonder, was there any role played by any of the uh, prominent MLB players in backing this effort, either overtly or maybe even covertly? Maybe some of that still has yet to come out in some of the reporting. I don't know. But I know that there's been talk over several years from people like CeCe Sabathia and Mookie Betts about issues related to African-American young players, issues related to, you know, acclimation to the league for Latin players coming from other countries. So I'm just wondering, uh, as far as you know, was there any uh, effort on behalf of minor leaguers by major leaguers? And have we seen any evidence of such solidarity? That's a, a good question. And it's not one that I, I fully know. I know that MLBPA was involved with the minor league organizing effort in a way that not at the beginning, I don't think necessarily, but they were a part of it. And so to the extent that, you know, it's again, it's a pretty strong union. It's a pretty cohesive union. I don't think that there's any way that, you know, the players didn't know about this. There are players who have been, you know, supportive on social media. They're the players that you would more or less expect. You're sort of Colin McHughes and Sean Doolittles. They're more sort of thoughtful, left-leaning baseball players, you know, that are known as such. The thing that's interesting to me about it is that there are a lot of Major League Baseball players who are not what you would consider left-leaning and who I think... In the past, there's been this kind of, you know, in the way that any sort of bad institution that lasts long enough, there's people that are like, well, I had to go through this shit, so you should too, and that's important to me. They really have kept a lid on that to a great extent, that there, because there's a ton of knuckleheads like that in Major League Baseball, like the same way there are in any workplace. You know, anybody that's been sort of like conditioned in that way is going to be inclined to think like that. But the players that have been on, on top of this and that are sort of have like had a leadership role in the union have managed to make it so that this has been, while I can't know like who was pulling strings necessarily behind the scenes, I will say that like Jack Flaherty, for instance, of the Cardinals did a great job of like telling people to shut up when they said things they shouldn't have said 
And that means a lot. I think that like just the idea of keeping a decently unified front on this sort of thing, again, like it counts for a lot. Like this is, it does, none of this happens if there's not real solidarity. And I think that that like so far they've done a great job with it. The other thing I would say is that a lot of the minor leaguers that were instrumental in this, they're quoted in Emma's piece are players, um, you know, it depends what level of like baseball freak you are. But like, I think of Trevor Hildenberger as a major league baseball player. Like that guy's had, you know, he's gotten saves in the majors. He's pitched, you know, like in the bigs and before his health problems started, probably parts of five seasons. He's just also a guy that like has spent enough time in AAA and enough time in the minors that he was tired of eating shit and was a part of this process. Like, so that line between minor leaguers and major leaguers is very thin I think, and that that's sort of, again, another thing where I would think that there's a, a possibility for real solidarity between people who make $50 million a year and people who make $20,000 a year is that it's the very, very rare major leaguer that wasn't at some point a minor leaguer. So even if you got a big bonus, you know what you're up against and you know, you're negotiating with the same guys you know, every time the contract is up. Yeah, and that's the point to make every time people are like, ah, they get paid millions of dollars to play a kid's game. It's like, yeah, yeah actually, most of them don't. And actually, most of them never make it to right. the majors. And they spend lots of years making next to nothing. Right. And it seems also like the sort of thing where it doesn't need to be like that. You know, the same way that and this is, it, I mean, it's not like naive because I know what the answer is. But like, there's always a part of me that's kind of like, is it really that important to you that everybody working in this shipping house warehouse not go to the bathroom too much? Like, why do you fucking care? Like, what does it mean that like, if you are all, and again, every major league baseball team is incredibly profitable. There are some that, you know, there are the ones that we know about that are like, you know, where the books are public, the teams can move money around and they can sort of like create like, this was something that owners like to do in other industries too, where they, they make the team sort of a loss taker and then they break out all the money making parts and run them as independent entities. You know, so you make all this money on parking, but your baseball team loses money. These teams print money. They're like television deals are in the billions of dollars. There's no reason why you have to pay a guy $18,000 unless you choose to do it. Unless it's important to you that that person get as little as they possibly can. Nothing radicalizes people like that. I mean, I just think that like a little bit, I mean, I don't know that MLB owners are going to ever have to pay minor leaguers enough that they'll be kicking themselves, but I would love a world where they could go back and look and be like, if we were 25% less disgusting in 1990, we would be a lot better now, but we didn't care to be that way. And now look at it. I mean, I want that for all bosses, but I especially want it for these guys. Yeah, that is so true. All right, let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we're going to jump across, uh, talk about a couple of different sports-related issues, and then most importantly, we're going to get David's predictions on the on the, the postseason here because, of Wait, really? course, we're all dying to hear that. <laughs> All right, we're gonna take. We're gonna take a quick. Yeah, no, take a take a moment, take a break. Everyone (laughs) in the shipping warehouse is gonna go take a crap real quick, and then we're gonna come back and we're gonna finish this on the other on the other side of the break. You're listening to David Roth here on Counterpunch Radio. Be right back.
here on Counterpunch Radio chatting with David Roth. Uh, you should just go ahead and pause the podcast, go over to the Defector website and go ahead and sign up for the subscription. We're going to talk a little bit about Defector in a few minutes, but that is really, uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't I don't subscribe to any other sports places. I subscribe there. So uh, what can I tell you? Thanks. All right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this very interesting man running for Senate down in Georgia. Very interesting man named Herschel Walker. I've, I've heard that he uh, did a few things in his uh, years before becoming this prominent Republican politician. Um, so anyway, Herschel Walker, famous NFL football player, famous uh, victim of obvious brain damage. What's going on with this Herschel Walker campaign? I Every day is some insane thing that this guy is saying. Is he really going to is he really going to be in the Senate? What's happening? It's, I feel like so I've kind of like morbidly been fascinated with the freaks that have gone up for Republican Senate nomination in different races this year. I've been trying for mostly as like a self-care thing to pay less attention to electoral politics, especially in states where I can't vote. It's one of those things. Uh, So the polls say that Herschel Walker is now running slightly ahead of Senator Raphael Warnock in Georgia um, within the margin of error. And Warnock's already had a, you know, surprising win over a much better established Republican. Uh, Herschel Walker probably has like something like a hundred percent name recognition in Georgia because he was the greatest running back in the history of college football at the university of Georgia or not the greatest in the history. I mean, whatever, but uh, he was up there. I mean, it was just basically like he was a freak and people that saw him play in college remember him as, you know, just in the way that like, have you ever watched like a lot of like, um, like high school highlight videos of guys that would go on to become like NBA players where you watch like LeBron playing against people whose like only qualification for playing against LeBron is that they're also juniors in high school. Like that's what Herschel Walker looked like in the, I mean, it wasn't the SEC at that time, but like against real teams in the eighties, he had his moments in the NFL too, although he's mostly remembered for uh, being a part of the worst trade in NFL history where the Vikings basically gave away five years of their future to the Cowboys in exchange for Herschel Walker. And then the Cowboys won a bunch of Super Bowls and the Vikings remained the Vikings as they will in perpetuity. Uh, He seems like he's doing well in the polls. And yet every time that Herschel Walker is in the news, it's like, like acknowledging that he has another secret child that he hadn't acknowledged before, but saying it's not a big deal. And that really like we should be focusing on CRT in our schools or whatever that there's, he's not a good candidate. He's, he was nominated mostly because of the fact that he'd been a very loyal 
surrogate for Donald Trump. He, Donald Trump employed Herschel Walker on the um, New Jersey generals of the USFL before uh, Trump destroyed the USFL just by being himself, just by doing Donald Trump shit and uh, got the league wrecked. But Walker was, he was one of those things where like you can be sort of, if you are endorsed by Trump and you're running against a bunch of other sort of like gray establishment Republican types, you can see this. I mean, it's how JD Vance got nominated in Ohio and it's how Blake Masters wound up, you know, getting nominated in Arizona. And it's how you can wind up fumbling the bag on a race that would otherwise seemingly be unlosable. That like, this is, it's not necessarily, I mean, Warnock has done as good a job as a Senator as I think anyone could do in two years. He hasn't been able to deliver on, the promises that got him elected, but um, you know that's one of those things that only one party's ever expected to do that anyway. And also, there hasn't been any sense of anybody delivering on anything hardly in the you know last two years. The thing with Walker that's like he is fascinating to me and maybe to you kind of morbidly as a test case in like just how obviously demented can you be and still get elected. And not like reelected. Like there's a lot of cases of just like people that basically are embalmed getting reelected to this. Like Charles Grassley is going to get reelected, and he's going to Senator Diane Feinstein's reelection Dianne campaign. Feinstein. Yep, I she's right on top of Booster. Yeah, I would pay I think a hundred dollars to watch her and Grassley play a game of Connect Four, <laughs> just to see how long that might take. But I think that there's in all of these. I mean, Herschel Walker. Again, like you don't want to say CTE is terrible. It's serious. The guy had a lot of concussions. Yet he is also like, this is not a guy that seems like he is qualified to um, like be in charge of, of anything. Like the stories that have come out about him as not just in terms of as a compulsive liar uh, and like a like preposterous, obvious compulsive liar saying that he graduated first in his class from the University of Georgia and he never graduated saying that he was like, an adjunct member of the FBI and local police departments. Again, like, what are you even talking about? Like, where did you come up with this stuff? And yet, like, somehow it hasn't, I mean, obviously it's not disqualifying. I think at this point, it's pretty clear that there is no such thing as disqualifying in American politics. But it is really bizarre to see how much, even, you know, relative, if you remember 2020, like in terms of keeping Biden out of the public eye, like, Walker's campaign has made Biden's campaign look relentless in it shoving its candidate in front of the public. Like Walker is only really allowed to come out every now and then for an interview on Fox News. And he might just talk about a sandwich he ate or the weather. Like you just don't know what you're going to get with him. You know, he's leaning into this whole thing. He said, I'm not that smart. Yeah. Right? And now just this is a like, simple guy. You and know, this pastor is going to try to talk circles around me at the debate and. It's one of those but, things where, like, that's classic, just like suppressing expectations, I'm just, I'm just, and yet I'm also just some country lawyer, right? And, you exactly. Know, like, but I mean, it's gonna succeed, isn't it? Yeah, that's I have, the, a, I have that's a bad feeling about that one. I mean, it's weird. I feel like there's such a thing as maybe there is such a thing as too big a freak to get elected, but it's the Blake Masters type of freak. It's not the Herschel Walker type of freak. That if you're just like a folksy dunce who you know is going to like back up uh, Mr. Trump whenever, because that's the one thing I think that any Republican voter really and truly cares about, then there's that. But it, like if you're like 
I mean, all the, the Peter Thiel aligned guys, the uh, Vance and, and Masters are weird. They're like that kind of like, like Stanford scented rich kid business types where either they never blink or they blink entirely too much. Just like kind of unsettling guys to be around. And like Walker kind of is that as well, but he's also like, you know, he's like a big, strong, handsome guy. You remember what it was like when he was cool at football? Like, so that's not like, you know, Blake Masters doesn't have that. And so him going out into the, you know, desert and doing like a dash cam video about how he wants to shoot ATF agents or something is like, people are going to see that and just be like, I don't think that I am comfortable with this guy. Whereas with Herschel Walker, maybe they have like a treasured memory of him trucking some Mississippi State D-back that they can fall back on and make that work for them. Herschel Walker could reenact the opening scene of Last Boy Scout and still win this election. At any moment. And honestly, I think that would be fine. Uh, like, it would be, we're, we've been due uh, for a true Last Boy Scout reappraisal. Um, I don't even want to explain what's in that scene. The heads will know. That's fine. The heads will know indeed. Let's let's shift gears and talk about something else that the heads know all about, and that is golf. Of yes, course, we love to talk that about, I was. Yeah, you talk about that a lot on the yeah. uh, on the Counterpunch yeah. radio show that you do. You from the left? From the left, we have a leftward <laughs> slicing kind of stroke. Oh, like a Phil um, Mickelson type, but yeah, something like. Speaking of Phil Mickelson, we'll so uh, in case people haven't followed this very interesting story that I also have a morbid fascination with, um, the LIV Golf Tournament or Golf Tour, which is funded by the Saudi uh, royal family or their sovereign wealth fund or something along those lines, and uh, this is the rival to the PGA, which is you know the longstanding uh, professional golf tour. And so um, two questions. One, what's the deal with this? And two, how much Saudi money would you need to work for them? Uh, I would, first of all, I would be honored to work with the Live Golf Tour. There's so many great, David Faraday, I would love to be on, uh, well, not on TV with him because Liv's not on TV, but I'd love to be on uh, their live stream, which you can only watch on their janky website with him. That would be great. They wouldn't even have to pay me. It would just be so great to be near Bryson DeChambeau. Well, you do get a free bone saw with every uh, tournament. (laughs) So So here's the thing with live golf that I think is worth mentioning. Uh, It's not working. And yet, like, it's probably going to work. Like, it's not working in the sense that it's not on TV. People can't watch it. No one cares. And no one goes to the events that they basically wind up having to give tickets away. Uh, My coworker, Chris Thompson, went to an event that they held at Donald Trump's course in Bedminster, New Jersey, one of, so there's five live events in the United States. Two of them are held at Trump courses, probably an accident. I think we can all agree. Uh, there's no reason why that would seem weird to anyone or should seem weird to anyone. Anyway, Chris went to it and it was like, it's kind of like a fan fest, you know, sort of idea where there's like a guy on stilts and you can like hit a golf ball into a golf simulator. And then, you know, you can watch the players, but, there's no stakes. It's not like with the PGA tour, you know, there's grand slam events, there's, you know, names that, you know, and you know, while the Saudi money has brought a lot of recognizable names over from the PGA tour, it's just kind of something they do on the weekends. Like you can't, if you can't watch it on TV and you can't really follow it in the media and also, you know, the sort of nature of it, which has this kind of sort of team-based there's a point system no one really understands exactly what it is if like there's nothing to care about when it comes to golf i think it's fair to say for the most part there is very little to care about but when you take away sort of the 
established narrative stakes of the tour and its main events. What you're left with is like watching other guys play golf. And, you know, again, that's sort of what the PGA tour has too, give or take the events whose names everyone knows, but the gamble that, and this is the reason why I think it's going to work is so the live golf players have filed an antitrust suit against the PGA tour for banning players that sign on with live golf from PGA tour events. Um, they might win that. Uh, and there's also the chance that like, you know, given how much money the Saudis have, and they're probably going to eat a billion dollars on this. Cause again, it's not a money-making enterprise yet. It's not showing any signs of being one, but the PGA tour is not um, an especially well-respected or I mean, well-loved institution. Like, and I feel like it's not secure enough that if you just have a billion dollars washing up against it, like, waves on a pier over enough period of time eventually it will collapse and live could create you know sort of just subsume it the challenge with all of this i mean and this is where it gets kind of interesting is that uh as you mentioned it's literally the fucking kingdom of saudi arabia everybody knows what these guys are about and when they were launching there were bits where phil mickelson who is the first of the big tour players to sign on with them in an interview was like, yeah, these guys are really scary. They cut that guy up with the bone saw. Do you remember that? So obviously that's not what you want. And like, then he had to sort of try to walk that back, which again, it's like, it's sort of hard when you get in like a thing with your business partners and you're just sort of like, I'm scared of them. I'm scared they might kill me. Uh, but they're my dear friends and I'm really excited to work with them on this project or whatever. It has this sense that I think a lot of uh, really dumb cynical things have in this moment where there's a, a sort of a heightened reality element to it that uh, makes it very difficult to call where it's going to go. I'm generally, and you know, not, um, this isn't what you want, but it's very hard to bet against um, a few motivated billion dollars uh, to eventually get what they want. It's just hard to tell what they want. And that's the thing where like, like, do you have like any, it doesn't even have to be a conspiracy theory here. Does this strike you? Because the normal story on this is that it's sports washing in Saudi Arabia trying to sort of like launder their reputation so that people think of them as the kingdom that loves golf instead of the kingdom that loves to cut up dissident journalists. I don't even know if that's it. Like, because there's easier ways to do it. Like, what do you think? And you don't have to answer this because I didn't see your show. I'm just curious because like, I don't necessarily get it. Like this is well, one that I've really had a hard time. There's with. probably a number of there is probably one of those situations where there's like three or four overlapping agendas mm -hmm. at work here. I would say I would say it definitely is about sports washing. It's definitely about them being very very slow to swallow the bitter pill of Qatar getting the World Cup. Yeah, um, that was a big big blow to the Saudis because if the Saudis weren't going to host the World Cup, they sure as hell weren't going to allow the uh, rival kingdom. Yeah, to they're get it. they're tiny neighbor. Yeah, right? yeah. You know, so um, I think there's an element of that where the where it's like, OK, well, you got your World Cup, but we got this thing and it's every year and it's forever. 
So like, fuck yep. you, you know? Um, but I also think that uh, this is a Trump Kushner operation. The Trump and Kushner are in the middle of all of this. I mean, we know how much Kushner is involved with the Saudis. Kushner's close with MBS. The fact that, you, as you pointed out, it's at two Trump courses, not only because the PGA courses don't want anything to do with this event, but also because the money is supposed to flow right. into Trump's preferred There's no directions. easier way to run $50 million to that guy than this. Right. Or whatever so, whatever dumb fee they're paying to like use his course for three days. And 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 fill it up with all their people to pay for, you know, exorbitant rates for all the rooms, to rent out the resorts, yeah. to do all the stuff. You know what I mean? So it's a way of lining Trump's and Kushner's pockets without having to make a very ugly campaign contribution. You know? Right. I think that's the so that last bit is the one that's always seemed the most convincing to me. And yet also it's very, very difficult to prove. But it does feel like the sort of thing where this idea, it didn't come out of nowhere. This is like Greg Norman's life's work is to fuck the PGA Tour. Greg Norman was a big part of working with the Saudis on this. So there's There are people that, you know, and Phil Mickelson hated the tour for a long time. A lot of pro golfers do. They're difficult guys. And the tour probably underpays them relative to how much money those events make and how much they get paid from TV money and stuff. That said, like, the idea that this would then just instantly come to be the moment that Donald Trump needed money and was out of power, but potentially, you know, going to be back in it. Like it's, it's circumstantial. And yet it's the sort of thing where like, if you watched how things ran during the years that Trump was in power, this is it. Like, this is that sort of like, it's very obviously graft, like, and yet it is like just concealed enough that you kind of have to guess at it for the time being like the other, you know, main defining factor of Trump is that he fucking sucks at being who he is and doing the crimes that he does. And so eventually maybe a journalist who is more enterprising and plugged in than me will break that story. Uh, but yeah, for now it is, it is, I think the weirdest shit in sports. I'm like fascinated by every bit of it and also wish it would go away instantly. There's something really odd about it too. Like when you, if you see the video or the photos of like their events, I mean, it's like, it's like full of people who look like they're that couple holding the automatic rifles in yes. Missouri in that photo. The you know I mean? We yeah. love them. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like, it's like, you know, a room full of Anthony Scaramucci's or yeah. whatever, you know, you're like, where the fuck am I? And there has been a lot of that. I think that like Chris wrote about this a little bit for us that like the the Trump course events have turned many more people out because Trump might be there or because it's like it's a, just another place to like wear your dumb red hat out in public and like wear like an American flag themed shirt. And that's like, I guess that works for them. Again, if they were trying to make money on ticket sales, which they're not because they wound up having to give away all the tickets that they give away for the most part. But yeah, there is that element of like, it's that same sort of like haunted carnival vibe that all Trump events have. Like there's something of that to this too. The ones that they've had in like the UK and stuff have been like, no one's there. Like people are just like, whatever, like you can play on this course, but like, I don't have to fucking watch it. Like, and I don't care to see like the best players of eight years ago make one last, you know, like to watch... Charles Schwarzel make $8 million in a weekend. Like I'm sure that's cool for him, but nobody else cares about it. 
Boy, Charles Schwartzel reference. He on the won. Show, on the podcast. He won the first event, and it was like not only was it his first win in like five years, he won more in that event than he'd won in like the previous eight PGA tours. I was seriously under the impression he was like a mid-century avant-garde composer. No, that was, he's a, he did all the music that's used in um, Eyes Wide Shut. Actually, that's who I was talking about. <laughs> yes, exactly. That see now and now now we get it. All right, let me ask you about something much less amusing and much more solemn, and that is Brittany Griner. This is this story. Um, I don't know. This is one of the more infuriating sports stories of recent yeah. uh, of recent years. So, I mean, the obvious question, David. I mean, there's many different answers. I'm not the first person to ask this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Why so? little attention for Brittany Griner. I mean, what explains this? I, I mean, look, I, we don't need to talk about the fact that, you know, the WNBA is not the NBA. Everybody understands that. Women's basketball is not men's basketball. Everybody understands that. But somehow this is egregious and awful still. Yeah. I mean, this is like one of the most recognizable women's basketball players in the world being held as a political prisoner in Russia. Um. And so that they could exchange her for, like, I think the initial offer was uh, the arms dealer Victor Boot. He's, uh, you know, also oh, yeah. another very recognizable player in his field. Uh, it's been interesting and kind of depressing to me. I don't think that necessarily all of it can be chalked up to sexism or racism or the lower profile of the WNBA. I think that some of the reason why this hasn't been talked about is that like, this is a very delicate situation and you have to assume that there is a diplomatic solution being worked on. That said, it's been a minute. Um, there hasn't been very much progress. Although again, of course you wouldn't know very much about it if it were happening because of the nature of this sort of deal. And so it's just another one of those things that you know about and sort of carry around with you every day. And it's very obviously an injustice and it's very disturbing. And yet it's just not going anywhere and it's not being sort of talked about. And it's just like, you know, the idea of basically like, all right, like, you know, the fifth most valuable player in this league is in a jail in Russia. And that's just how it is. That's just, you know, Tuesday or whatever. And that is, uh, that's really weird. It's a really uncanny and disturbing thing and i feel like it happens everywhere up and down the culture the thing that's strangest about this i guess and the part of it that i think there maybe could and should be more conversation about is why was britney griner in russia in the first place and the answer to that is that the wnba even for players like griner who have been stars you know at long standing uh really doesn't pay the players very much and so during the offseason of the WNBA, they go and play abroad where they can get paid more. Weirdly, countries that tend to like paying uh, American women basketball players are countries like China and Russia. And they will go there and they'll make more playing a six-week season than they will playing in an entire WNBA season. That's like sort of how you make it work as you know somebody who is like probably doing well by WNBA player standards, but not remotely well by professional athlete standards. And that bit of it, I think, is, again, you know, it's not new. I think that people have known that about the WNBA for a while. It does, again, sort of feel like the kind of thing that, you know, the NBA has a say in the WNBA. I believe they're co-owned. I believe the NBA owns WNBA teams. 
that element of it of like why are these players having to take a second job again kind of goes back to i mean again not every WNBA team makes money in the way that nba teams do but it feels sort of similar to what we were talking about in terms of the way that minor league baseball players are treated like if this is the sort of problem that you could make go away with not a lot of money but a comparatively little bit of money given how much money professional sports leagues tend to bring in why would you not have done it at this point? And why would you be making your players, I mean, probably shorten their careers and also put themselves at this kind of crazy risk? Like, how could that possibly be worth it? We saw actions from NBA players and NBA teams at various times in recent years. We saw it around the Colin Kaepernick issue. We've seen it around uh, Black Lives Matter, the, uh, you know, the George Floyd assassination, etc., I don't know. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know that there was anything that was really as public, as publicly oriented around Brittany Griner as there was around some of those other issues. And I understand that they're different, but for me, at least seeing as how the war in Ukraine began in February, the basketball season was going on, the playoffs put NBA players center stage. I would have thought that some of them, Steph Curry or others would have used the spotlight a little bit more than they did. So what is your take on NBA players and uh, if not speaking out, then lending their star power to highlighting the issue. I mean, I think that it obviously, you know, it's on them, but I would say that like your, your timeline makes a lot of sense. I think that like in February, it was possible to say, this is, this is new. This is like a very sort of tenuous situation. Like let this go through the channels and trust that the right people are working on it. Is that sort of the type of case that you could make and say is maybe a little cynical or maybe a little self-serving? Definitely. The NBA season starts in a couple of months. At that point, and I don't think anybody really expects Brittany Griner to be home by then. I don't know where those negotiations are. Russia's obviously got a lot of other problems at the moment. I think that if we get to that point and she's been there for, you know, going on a year I would hope that it would be the sort of thing where they could draw some attention to the issue. But I mean, I don't know how this sort of stuff works. I mean, I feel like this is kind of the the interesting thing with all those actions that you talked about, that, you know, NBA Players Association is a decently strong union. Uh, and NBA players have, I think, in a way that is unique among professional athletes, been they've been open and they've also made themselves sort of comfortable making their politics a part of their public personas. And yet, like, I don't get the sense that there's been any sort of coordination on this. And I think that there would there would sort of have to be that you look at the actions that happened in the past and they were wildcat strikes. I mean, and it was like and it was in one clubhouse or in another clubhouse that it wasn't the sort of thing where all of the players were on the same page with it. And in this case, you know, if it's like one person wearing a free Britney Griner T-shirt, then I don't know necessarily what that means. But I'd, I'd like to believe that there is some potential for mobilization there just because of how obviously egregious the situation is. But I don't know, you know, it's not the sort of thing where, you know, like who are you necessarily appealing to with this? Like that, that's the other thing, you know, it feels like, you know, wearing those, I can't breathe t-shirts and stuff that, you know, which players did like, I mean, I think that is meaningful. I think it's important in, you know, a sort of like not as important as this or that, but it is a way, you know, it's like actual solutions to the problem. It's not the same thing as like changing 
the way that we police people in this country. But you can see who the other side of the aisle is in that. You know, that like Marcus Smart wearing a t-shirt isn't going to mean shit to Vladimir Putin. And, you know, Russia is an even tougher nut to crack probably than the average uh, police department. Although that's an interesting debate. You know, I don't think that anybody would expect that uh, it would change Putin's mind or anything that the Russians might have to do, but to impose some kind of cost on those with power in the United States, I mean, would be the ultimate goal of this, whether it's cause some loss of revenue or whatever it might be, maybe a a one a one day strike where none of the players play in their games, which would cost, I don't know, however many hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue or whatnot. I mean, these kind of things to force the, I mean, cause again, I, I hate to say it, but you and I both know most people in this country don't know anything about Brittany Griner. They don't know all that much about Ukraine. So, right. you know what I mean? For them hearing, you know, LeBron say, you know what, I'm not playing today because of this. I mean, right. I, I do think that would have an impact. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's basically, and this is one of those things where I've become very, I'm not even cynical, but I think just tired of the idea of raising awareness as an end in itself, especially because I feel like in a lot of these cases that like any of the things that, you know, if you're raising awareness of police violence, like there's specific instances of it, but like, I think everybody sort of knows at this point. In this case, I think that there is an argument, and I think it's the one that you just sort of laid out that raising awareness is important because I think there's a lot of people who don't know that there is a prominent American being held captive in Russia. And I think that in this case, like certainly the, you know, the broader circumstances, you don't need to make this about pay inequity in the WNBA, although I think that would be nice. But given that this isn't because of the way that it's been covered and because it's been so sort of like slow rolled in various ways, that like a little bit of awareness could go a long way just because the alternative of, you know, is what we have now, which is like you and me talking about this on a podcast and our friends know about it. But like my parents don't know anything about this, you know, and like that you're right that I think that like a, a figure of like LeBron's profile, like an Instagram post is worth, you know, millions of people's awareness, you know, that that's like how you would find out about stuff. I just don't understand yeah, and, how that particular and, sausage gets made. Yeah, and I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not suggesting like Dennis Rodman going to go over and like diplomacy <laughs> right. us, you know, to into like world peace or whatever, you know. But I mean, like for instance, China is a multi billion dollar basketball market. China, the Chinese fan base is huge. The yep. NBA and the NBA makes wants billions. It. It's very yeah. important to them, you know. And I mean something like this, an issue like this upon which the players are very, very motivated is exactly the kind of thing that goes up the ladder in the Chinese Communist Party and does get into the ear of people that do help to make policy. Now, does that mean they're going to pick up the phone and say, hey, Vlad, let's cut the shit? No. But again, it is doing, I guess, what can be done given the situation. Right. And I think we can agree too that like doing nothing isn't doing anything, right? That like at this point... It's hard to see an end game here just because like the two counterparties in this negotiation are not seemingly very motivated to get it done. And, you know, because these things are hard and yet like ignoring it is not going to make it go away. Very obviously. No question about it. Well, Free Britney is obviously the only thing to say in concluding that yeah. uh, that conversation there. I mean, Britney deserves to be home. She deserves to be with her wife and this 
fucking chapter needs to be over with, even yep. if this ugly war continues. But anyway, David, we're almost out of time. I want to I want to give you a chance to tell us a little bit about Defector. Obviously, there's people listening to us who are certainly all subscribers to Counterpunch, oh, yeah, but I'd maybe imagine. they're not subscribing to Defector. Tell us a little bit in a nutshell, um, because we all have families and to go to and weed to smoke here. So, right. uh, you know, Tell us a little bit about Defector. How did this thing start? I mean, I know it emerged out of a very interesting thing, but how did it start? And most importantly, why is an independent media site like Defector so important, given the audience that it serves and given the media landscape today? Well, important is is a very nice word to use that I'm not sure I'm going to totally <laughs> oh, echo. come now, come that's, now. Well, as we've established, it's 100% subscriber rate in terms of your listeners. So I'm not telling them anything they don't know. But the thumbnail, uh, I worked with most of the people I work with at Defector. I worked with them at a site called Deadspin in 2019. We were bought by a private equity concern called Great Hill Partners, uh, which is, they're not really even very good. Uh, it's a really unfair name for them to have chosen for themselves. Uh, they started monkeying around with our stuff. They fired one editor in chief. They fired another editor in chief. Uh, and we realized that we were kind of on borrowed time and we all quit at the same time. And that was on Halloween of 2019. Very easy to remember because uh, I remember after we all decided to quit, we went to the bar that was downstairs from the office that Great Hill had moved us to which was in Times Square. So we were in Planet Hollywood drinking beers and they were playing uh, like the soundtrack to Beetlejuice on like the worst day of any of our lives. It's really something that tends that to stick is, with oh you. Oh my God. I need like a five minute skit of like that. Like just There's replay, so... figure out who's going to play you. I don't care. It doesn't matter. But <laughs> there was so much of that in the last days. We had a meeting with HR in an office room that had been decorated with a Halloween theme. So it had like, literally as we were going in there, there were like fake bloody handprints on the glass doors and like big spiders in the corner. And we were like, this is skeleton cr-. pops out with like yeah. a pink slip. Like, like right, you're fired. <laughs> yeah. Like the crypt keeper comes in and it's like, we want to remind you about the company handbook. Uh, it was <laughs> a very uh, ridiculous and on the nose experience. So after we left, we were like, at least we don't have to work here anymore. Um, but we didn't have a lot of cushion. We weren't laid off. Uh, the website, you know, didn't exist. It now does exist in this kind of um, shuffling zombie form. Uh, the less said about it, the better. The So we wanted to go back to doing what we did. I mean, like we had been, I think all of us had sort of thought of that as being like the the workplace that we wanted to stay in for as long as we could. And you know, as soon as we left, we like started Slack channels back up and it was the same sort of conversation, except for we weren't assigning stories to each other and we weren't editing each other's stories, like a little bit with freelance stuff, you know, we'd look at shit, but we were all on the market. We tried to uh, start a new site with, you know, funding from rich guys, didn't work. Uh, obviously the timing of the pandemic was not ideal there. We were fairly close on a deal in uh, late winter of 2020. And then uh, the sort of world went to shit. So, um, we wound up doing it ourselves and just, we are subscriber supported. Uh, we're in, we just had our second birthday. So we launched on like, I think it was September 12th, uh, 2021. And was it? No, September 2020. Yeah. September 2020. And you know, it's working like that part of it is great. We've got a good number of subscribers. We've got, you know, all these other sort of ancillary 
bits. We've got our podcast, Kelsey McKinney's podcast, Normal Gossip is like a legit blockbuster and like a ton of work by her and the producer, Alex Lachlan, but they are fantastic. I recommend that to anybody. And we can do our posts again. You know, we've hired people. Uh, we're continuing to grow and, and do new stuff. We're about to have an offsite meeting next week where we talk about, you know, where we w- sort of want to go from here. But we are, uh, it's certainly in the best position professionally that I have ever been in, just in terms of everywhere that I've worked. And I've had, I think at this point, like every type of bad ownership scenario that you could have. I mean, I've been private equity, I've been whatever Vice was trying to do, sell the websites to fucking MBS and cash out. Uh, you know, in other cases, venture capital backed with SB Nation before that. Uh, all of those experiences were good in their ways. I got to work with some great people. I made friends and all that. I also knew that at some point when a rich guy got bored, I would get pivoted out of a job. And that's not the case here. You know, we don't want to cash out. Uh, we have in mind being a viable cash business and growing and doing the posts that we like to do and the posts that our readers want us to do. And that's all we want to do is that like, we're not trying to become ESPN or satisfy some venture capitalists. I, you know, idea of like hockey stick growth, like the poor athletic was stuck trying to do. And in that case, it's really, it's been a great relief. Like I'm not, you know, work is work. It's not like the sort of thing where I, I wake up every day skipping and you know, bluebirds dress me like I'm in a Disney cartoon. I still have to get up and write about stuff that makes me mad, you know, but I, I get to do it with my friends. I get to own my work. And, uh, I feel at this point, like this is really the only way that I could have a job like this and feel secure, but just because I don't trust any really of the institutions that I've been at to, treat me like a person over a long enough period of time, but I do trust my friends and I do trust myself. And I think that like, so far the system that we've got has delivered on that in a way that like more so than I, than I would have hoped. And uh, one other thing I would just say about Defector too, is that it's not like any of these other sites that you would find, you know, I mean, uh, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of this kind of writing out there. And um, if you're somebody who appreciates, you know, funny writing that is also, you know, uh, uh, highlighting issues of importance and also light and sometimes not so light, I highly recommend it. Uh, Defector, Defector Media is the, uh, I think that's, is that the website? What's the website? No, it's defector.com. Defector.com. Yep. yep. Defector.com. All right. So um, I would ask everybody to consider getting that uh, subscription. And as the holidays approach, think about who in your life reads sports shit and uh, give them one of those. Yeah. And we'll, uh, them, isn't uh, there... we'll throw them in a t-shirt or something like that. Yeah. There you go. Hey, yeah, throw them a fucking t-shirt. Uh, huh? you, well, you want some stickies? I got plenty <laughs> of stickies. All right. So now that we've busted out the accents here in the right. last few minutes, it Time is uh, the very end of September. And so, of course, for those of us who are uh, baseball nerds, this is an exciting time of the year. I, of course, languish with my uh, Los Angeles Angels, embarrassing and pathetic, though they continue to be. But, David, we share the New York Mets. So yes. tell me about tell me about this the is the New York first Mets. time in a really long time where we can be like, and thank goodness for that. Yeah. Thank goodness well, we've got the Mets. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. We'll see a week from now. So, David, what's your uh what's your prediction for uh the postseason for the New York Mets and for how they might fuck this up? So it is very difficult for me, as someone who follows baseball, to 
not think that this is going to wind up being the Dodgers and the Astros playing at the end of October and everybody being like, oh, wow, well, that's great. They're both very good teams. I'm sure a very deserving champion will be crowned. They are extremely good teams. The Dodgers are preposterously good. The Astros are only slightly worse. It might be that every other team that makes the postseason is an afterthought, but also it's a baseball postseason. Stupid shit happens all the time. Um, And while the Mets, you know, making the World Series would probably be the stupidest shit, it's not because they're not good. It's just because they were, you know, actively bad as recently as last year. Um, I don't know that the Mets are really a lot better than the Braves. Um, I don't know where you fall on that one, uh, but I think the I Braves are pretty were. good. I thought they were. I thought yeah. they were until I don't know a month ago, maybe. They've had so the Mets have had. Uh, this is we can get granular. We're in that <laughs> one hour fifth minute of this. <laughs> yeah, get granular, baby. <laughs> so the Mets miss Starling Marte a lot. That like one of their best players broke his finger uh, on a check swing. A friend of mine who is a Pirates fan told me that he was that who and they watched Starling Marte for a long time was like, I could have told you that happens like twice a year. He loves to check swing. Um, so they're missing this guy who is basically, you know, with their second or third best hitter given the day. Um, and they're missing him a lot. The rest of the team though, uh, to me, like I can kind of see it from here. Uh, the Mets did a pretty impressive turnaround. They changed owners. Their owner is the prolific financial criminal, Stephen Cohen. Uh, it used to be a family of local buttheads named the, the Wilpons. Uh, Cohen is not a guy that I want to have a beer with, if I'm being honest. But he did the thing that an owner can do to turn a team around fast, which is spend money on the major league team. The hard stuff in terms of building an actual organization that makes sense, I have no idea where he is on that. But he paid Max Scherzer, and he paid Starling Marte, and he paid Mark Canna, and he paid Eduardo Escobar, and they shored up a bunch of positions. The Mets are good. I will put that on this podcast. Are they as good as the defending world champion Braves? I don't know. Are they anywhere near as good as the Dodgers? I don't think anybody really is. Uh, but I think that there's there's something to watch. There's interesting teams in the postseason, and then there are those two dominant teams. But I think that the teams that are going to be there even if they're just there for a little while. Like the Cleveland Guardians, are, I don't think, are really very good, but they're going to win the AL Central, and they are weird. They have multiple guys on their team who are, like, slugging 300, like dudes that, like, hardly ever hit the ball out of the infield, and they still make it work. So if you like baseball and you don't want it to just be this sort of, like, ultra-optimized thing where every player takes the same approach to pitching and the same approach to hitting – there is going to be enough of like like counterpoint in the postseason that I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, it's just also tough because I'm going to be super stressed out until the Mets either win at all or lose. Does that seem fair? Am I being? Yeah, I'm trying not no, to be too biased about. This. I think it is. I, I for me at least, it, maybe I'm being a little optimistic here, but it reminds me a lot of 2015. Yeah, you know, I mean, that team really had no business going to the World Series. That yeah. team, you know, I mean, it wasn't even all that great if you look at. If you yeah. look back at that team, but like, you know, a short series, a couple of dominant pitchers who just, you can't hit. And all of a sudden they're in the world series. So yeah. I, I don't know. I actually feel pretty good about it as compared to the other rotations that they would face, especially short series. Yeah. That's what's fun with the major league baseball postseason in general is that like 
luck plays an incredibly huge role in it. And then also there is that other thing in the same way that like, you know, hockey fans are always like a hot goalie can win you a Stanley cup. And I don't really uh, follow hockey very closely. I don't know why it would be important how good looking your goalie is. I think that the main issue with this is that like, if you have Jacob deGrom and Max Scherzer starting the first two games of a series that you can win by winning three games, you're doing fine. Like that's a good start. It doesn't guarantee anything, but nothing guarantees anything. You know, like if the stupid Guardians win the World Series because Miles Straw hits his first home run of the season in the World Series, then like that would be fine. That would be very baseball in terms of things that could happen. I would much rather the, you know, that happening with the Mets and instead of Miles Straw, it's Tomas Nito, but whatever. That's that's me. Now, I guess the last question I have to ask you is what does it mean to be a Mets fan? What is Mets fandom, as you as you would describe it? Because I mean, I'm 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 a many time loser when it comes to baseball. My the the team won a World Series in 2002, and the Mets went to a World Series in 2015, and that's about it for me. So, yeah. So the Angels were your first team. Yeah, yeah. That's where I, I grew up in Southern California, watching the Angels. That's the team I've always followed, and. Uh, it's a sad, sad and embarrassing journey. Yeah. So I remember that 2002 team and I thought they were really cool. Um, yeah, and I, <laughs> when I was hindsight. in school out there, I think we probably talked about this last yeah, we time. Did. I you adopt- went to Chapman, right? Yeah. No, I yeah. went to Pomona, oh, Pomona, but I adopted yeah. the Angels yes. when I was out there. So I went to a bunch of games at uh, whatever Edison or whatever they were calling Angel Stadium. And I really liked it. Uh, it's a very weird place to see a game, but you know, you get up close to Troy Percival. It's really like Orange County is a very weird place. Super and duper weird. It, <laughs> the stadium represents the county very well. As yeah, like, it has like, you know, oddly smelling like urine, but still people are in flip flops. Yeah, it's kind of the vibe of like a rainforest cafe where gunfire is about to break out. <laughs> Just a really strange, very strange place. Uh, <laughs> But like, so I remember that Angels team very fondly. I'm also old enough that I remember the Mets winning the World Series in 1986. I was eight years old. Uh, And I think that that probably is a big part of how I wound up a Mets fan. Like that I was just, you know, making the little kid choice. I think my dad was going to let me pick for myself or decide not to care about baseball. But he saw that I cared about the Mets. He took me to a couple games and he woke me up you know, for game six when I was eight years old. I mean, he'd sent me to bed because they were losing. And it was in extra innings and I had to be at school the next day. And then he came and got me and was like, you know, with the footy pajamas on, come watch this shit. And that, you know, I haven't seen him win a World Series since. I've seen them win, I think, two World Series games since then uh, over the entire, over the stretch of whatever that is, 35 years or something. But uh, I think that being a Mets fan in some, in the most basic sense, given that I live in New York City, is just a matter of not being a Yankees fan. Um, there's more to it than that, you know, like, but in, at some level you are choosing to do something that you know is probably going to make you a little more unhappy than the easier option. Like being a Yankees fan is like, you always have the right to complain about service and be like, get this guy to fuck out of here. And with Mets fans, it's not like they're not going to do that either. Like I'm not, I'm not a big, get this guy the fuck out of here dude by nature. But I think that like, I've seen some bad teams. There have been some guys where I was kind of like, that's enough Jason Vargas. Thank you. Terrific. Former but, Angel. Former Angel. Oh, Jason former Vargas. Angel. Uh, two-time Met. He had the perfect combination of Angels vibes and Mets vibes, totally. which is to say, totally. just like a guy who was always kind of wet looking and mean and giving up four runs in five innings, like just the worst. 
I, I have to tell you though that the Mets it's what you said because and I selected the Mets as an adult moving right. to New York City and <laughs> made the conscious no choice. No one else you can blame for that one. Yeah. So for me, it's it goes back to something my friend and former guest on this show many times over, Paul Street, has said. Paul's a diehard White Sox fan, and he mm-hmm. grew up, his dad, you know, going back to like the 1920s with the White Sox. And he said the old phrase, rooting for the Yankees is like rooting for U.S. Steel. Yep. You know, I've heard or standard like oil too, but Amazon never, or never any oil. of the beloved corporations. Yeah. No, it's, always it's like... the evil, the most evil one you could imagine, yep. you know? So the Yankees, yeah, I mean, you know, it's like rooting for Amazon or something, yeah. you know? I, I, mean, I will so... say that this team, I respect the Yankees as an organization a lot more now than I did because they're doing good baseball team things. When I was a kid, their owner was George Steinbrenner who was like a sort of a proto-Trump figure, just a berserk billionaire guy who was constantly feuding and going to war with people. He hired a private detective to follow Dave Winfield around because he hated Dave Winfield, who he was paying. He was on the team at the time. He was their best player. He was, you know, a maniac. And this Yankees team, part of why they're so good is that they developed a bunch of these guys, that they have more people pitching in their minor league system who are like 97 and a slider and it works then like you know they could afford to roster like they're good at it in the same way that with the dodgers they pay a lot of money they're also really fucking good at being a baseball team that doesn't mean i like it but it is the sort of thing where like i find it easier to cheer for aaron judge or at least to tolerate aaron judge because i'm not going to cheer for him but to tolerate aaron judge than it was for me to tolerate the you know kind of like end stage Wade Boggs type guys on their turn of the millennium world series teams, or, you know, certainly the like actively uh, going to seed slugger types that Steinbrenner would hire and then immediately try to destroy in the tabloids. But the yeah, Jay none Buners, of it's like, the Jay Buners of Jay the world. Buners. They, 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 you know, they, well, it's Ken Phelps. My people kept telling me, <laughs> I just don't understand the, I, this is the, I guess the, the main part of it. The, I think, I don't remember who it was that I was talking to. It might've been, my wife actually which is funny because i don't know why we would have been talking about baseball where she was like there's not a version of you that's a yankees fan like it's not like if you because i was saying like if i grew up here you know if i grew up in the bronx we have a friend who grew up in the bronx who is a yankees fan a couple of friends who grew up in the bronx are yankees fans friend that grew up in upper manhattan same thing i didn't like i had a choice and i feel like i made a you know can't say it's always been easy for me but, i feel like you have to be a well-adjusted person to be a yankees fan the, okay. Like the, the the manic the, the the manic insane nebbish types are always Mets fans. Yes, it is. It's the difference between like I mean I guess it is really kind of like it's a Manhattan versus Queens energy, but then there's also or, you know a Bronx. Bronx is its own fucking world, man. I want to speak on that. I'm not from there. I'm not qualified, <laughs> but there is like an element of uh, entitlement, I guess, that comes with being a Yankees fan. You choose it, and then it's just like only the best. I need the premium, like, you know, experience. Hey, 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 got rings? Got rings, yeah. motherfucker? Oh, God. Have you been to a game at the new Yankee Stadium? Oh, my God, yes. It's like I mean, a, when the Angels come, I would go to see them. Yeah. It's like, it's so the old one, I used to go to a lot of games at the old stadium because all my friends growing up were Yankees fans. And where I grew up in New Jersey, it was like, you know, if you did it right, you could be there in 20 minutes. Uh, and so we'd go sit in the bleachers, like $8 to get in. Um, and it, you know, it sucked. Like it was weird. Uh, the bleachers were not as scary as they had been, but they were still pretty scary and pretty like definitely the drunkest adults I'd ever seen in my life. Uh, 
and I didn't have that sheltered and upbringing, but it was like, just really, there's some different shit happening out there. Um, but the new experience of it, it's like going to, uh, like sort of a casino, but really more just like a steakhouse in a casino. It's just utterly <laughs> charmless and expensive and kind of like platinum plated as far as the eye can see just the worst vibes that you could get out of ballpark like it's it makes the, the old the yankee trump stadium look ballparks. charming it's the trump yep. of ballparks it really is it's or it's like the trump the way that have you been in like if you go in like a trump building like the trump tower in midtown manhattan it's like so it sucks there's a tiffany store there i think everything else that's there is like Trump's ice cream, the Trump cafe, like Trump's old timey Frenchie fries. It's all stuff. It's got his name on it. And with the Yankees, it's the same sort of deal where it's just kind of like they have these, you know, partnerships where like, you know, you can get like Marcus Samuelson chicken fingers. And, you know, weirdly, they had a um, I'm forgetting the name of it now. The uh, Benny Hanna at the yeah. ballpark, yes. which seems like a very dangerous idea. You can't they won't throw shrimp to you. You just get like a bowl. But the idea of like all of these things, it's all still fundamentally so Yankees in the way that everything that's Trump is just oppressively Trump. I think that that is a fair call. It's not a nice thing to say about a ballpark, but it is not an unfair one in this case. Absolutely. Well, we are out of time. Of course, we could go on and on and on, but I won't do that to my audience. So uh, David Roth has been with me. Defector is where you should go. Get your subscription. Get your subscription also wherever you get your podcast. The podcast is The Distraction. That is an excellent, excellent podcast to enter into your rotation. And of course, David on Twitter at David underscore J underscore Roth. David Roth, thank you as always for coming to Counterpunch and chatting with us. Man, thank you for having me back. I look forward to a third visit if I didn't talk too much this time. But yeah, no, 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 no. It was just enough. Otherwise, I would not be inviting you. Oh, another win for me. Wow. <laughs> Feels amazing. All right, thank listeners. You, thank you as always. <laughs> Chat again next time. Uh,